The scripture reading today is from Psalms 23. Some very precious words and from the Bible, and we're very privileged to read them to you today. The Lord is my shepherd, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of mine enemies and anoint my head with oil, for my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Amen. Let's again pray to the Lord as we go to his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you are here with us now. We pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to understand your word with great clarity. I pray that we would receive it with conviction. And I pray that your spirit would bless us with power. That we would leave here today proclaiming what you've done here among us as your people. And that your church would be built up. That we would be ready to see Jesus face to face when he returns. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked Bill and Carol to read Psalm 23 because it's familiar and it's very comforting. And in the middle of that very familiar psalm, one of the reasons I believe that it's so comforting is it acknowledges the reality of of something the psalmist called the valley of the shadow of death. There are times in every person's life that are dark. Some of them are times where you lose a loved one. Maybe someone has passed away. Some of them are times of fear and uncertainty for many different reasons. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you never wanted to experience. Sometimes, I mentioned a little bit earlier, some of the crazy interplay between generations as every generation in the history of the world has worried that the next generation is just going to drop the ball. It's all going to be over. Sometimes we watch the news and it seems like the world is ending. The thing that makes Psalm 23 so profound is the fact that God's guiding presence doesn't prevent you from experiencing the valley but that he is with you in the valley as your protector, as your provider, and as the one who lovingly corrects you when you are wrong. And God is with us now as we go to Luke's gospel. And I entitled this message, Humility in the Dark. If you, if you have a bulletin, I, I always have my outline there. You can kind of get a sense of what my main points are going to be. But I'd like to actually tweak that just a little bit. I'd like to entitle this message, Humble Faith in the Darkest Hour. Humble Faith in the Darkest Hour. And here's why I want to tweak that just a little bit. Jesus, if you've been paying attention in in Luke's gospel as we've gone along, 
has described how one of his disciples will betray him. If you think about great leaders in history, normally the betrayal of a person who is close to you marks the end of your influence. But for Jesus, he planned and allowed for this betrayal. And he is preparing his disciples, the other 11, for what will come in the history's darkest hour. He is about to pour out his blood willingly on the cross so that you and I and his disciples can have peace with God so that we can have the forgiveness of sins because he has paid the price for our sins. And the disciples, if you've already turned to Luke 22, instead of trying to understand the cross, instead of asking Jesus questions, they immediately question whether or not they are the one who's going to betray him. That's verse 23 right before our text. And from that conversation, verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So they move from, which one of us is going to betray the Lord, to, it couldn't possibly be me. I'm way better than all of you guys. And the disciples, instead of trying to understand what Jesus is about to do, with all of his clear warnings... They argue about which of them is the greatest because they clearly lack humility. They don't understand what Jesus is doing and they don't understand what he's calling them to do. In fact, in this context, Jesus tells Peter, who is arguably one of the leaders, if not the leader of the disciples, that Satan is going to sift him. Satan wants him to fall and to fail. And in fact, although Peter is not the betrayer, Jesus says, Peter, you will deny me. He humbles the one who should be leading the pack. Peter denies what Jesus says. No, Lord, not me. I'm ready to die with you. And it's revealed that he is totally unprepared for what's coming. And then Jesus assures them all, that they are going to enter a time where they need to prepare to provide for themselves. In the past, their ministry has seen enormous blessing and fruit. It's the kind of ministry I think everyone longs to be part of, a church that's growing. If you read through the Gospels and you look at Jesus' ministry, it describes how great crowds were attracted to him, not only because of his miracles, but also because of how he taught. It said he taught as someone who had authority He could help you understand the word of God for you and he could give you hope and he welcomed people in who had never felt included and they found forgiveness and they found healing and the crowds grew and grew and grew. And not only that, but the disciples experienced the awesome ability to do what he did. He sent out the 12, later he sends out 72 and they preach, they preach the good news that God will forgive your sins and not only do they preach, but they heal and not only do they heal, they cast out demons. Not only do they cast out demons, but they raise the dead. And so they are just unbelievably excited about what God is doing in them and through them. And when Jesus sent them out, he said, you don't need to worry about anything. You, you don't need to pack a second shirt in case you spill your coffee. You, you don't need to take extra money in case you run out. 
everything will be provided for you. Depend on the hospitality of the people that you are going to spread this good news to. Because as people hear you and respond to the good news, they will welcome you into their homes and provide for you. But now, Jesus, after he's built this ministry, says to them, that time is over. You need to be prepared for what's coming. It will be dark. And so this morning, my prayer is that we would understand what he meant to them in their time. And not only that, but that we would be prepared to follow Christ in our darkest hours so that we as the church would be faithful until Christ comes, knowing that it may not get better or easier now. In many ways, it may get worse and more difficult. And yet... Jesus gives us what we need to be faithful in those times. So I want to urge you to look carefully at the scriptures with me. But before I go through the passage verse by verse, I want to point out verse 36, which is one of the most difficult verses in scripture to talk about. And I want to deal with it now before we go through it, because this is not the main point of the passage. So if you're with me in Luke chapter 22, you can kind of look at my Bible. It's probably, I don't know seven-eighths of the way through the Bible. Uh, Find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and look at verse 36. Jesus says to his disciples, Now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, why is Jesus telling his disciples not only to pack their own money, not only to make sure that they have a knapsack with provisions, but also to sell a cloak and buy a sword? What is he talking about? Well, I want to be very clear. He is not contradicting everything he has ever said to them throughout the rest of the gospel. He has told them very clearly that they are to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Loving your enemy is not terribly consistent with killing them with a sword. So he is not telling them to do something that contradicts his clear teaching elsewhere. And I want to give you three reasons that we need to pause and think carefully about what this verse means, rather than recklessly assuming that Jesus is advocating a sort of self-reliant violence. As the story continues, Christ is betrayed. He's handed over to to the chief priests and the scribes. They put him on a mock trial, and before they take him there, they lead him away with a group of soldiers. You see this in all the Gospels, and in Luke's Gospel, it describes how Peter takes his sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest. Peter might say, Jesus, man, this is the only thing I've ever heard you say. I'm doing it. And Jesus rebukes him. Tells him to put his sword away. That's not what he intends to do. In Matthew's gospel, and I'll give you this reference if you want to look at it later, Matthew 26, 52, Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. Whoever lives by the sword dies by the sword. 
And that verse so clearly is saying, okay, you might think you're saving your life by using a sword and protecting yourself. You will die by it if you attempt to live by it. And I think it's so critical to recognize Jesus says that as Peter is defending him. Peter is not trying to to build the kingdom through violence. He's not starting a crusade. He's not trying to get people to convert at the edge of the sword. Peter is in a moment of not only self-defense, but also defending his Lord, who has been wrongfully accused and is being arrested in the middle of the night away from the crowds because everyone knows that this arrest is unfair and immoral. And in that unjust moment, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. Whoever lives by it dies by it. And I think we ought to understand Jesus is clearly saying that in that time, Peter was wrong for trying to practice self-defense. We might not like to hear that because we love the idea of self-defense. But Jesus has clearly taught his followers he has come to die And Peter is wrongly defending the Lord and really getting in the way of God's plan. So there's that clear statement of Christ. Whoever lives by the sword dies by it. So he's not advocating violence. Not only that, when Jesus stands before Pilate, John chapter 18, verse 36, he says to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But his kingdom is not of this world. So when the one guy did try to fight to prevent his arrest, Jesus rebuked him and said, stop it. And not only that, if you look at how Peter and the other disciples spread the gospel throughout the book of Acts, that the book of Acts is such a precious gift to the church, what you find is that there are constant obstacles to the growth of the church. Peter, Paul, all of the apostles, Philip, they are spreading the good news. Jesus died for your sins, but God raised him from the dead. You can be forgiven for your sins. You can have the hope of new life in Christ. All you need to do is repent and be baptized. Believe what Jesus did for you. Identify with him in baptism. And now you are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the church. You're part of a family. They meet each other's needs, and as the family grows, people start recognizing this is an awesome and a great thing, and the same thing happens to the church as what happens to Jesus. The chief priests and the rulers look at the growth of the church, they become jealous, they become enraged, and they arrest the leadership. Not once in the book of Acts does Peter or Paul or anyone else resist arrest. A few times they may try to skip out of town early. That does happen. It's not wrong. But most of the time, they are hauled into jail, and even in jail, they spread the good news of the gospel, they sing praises, they experience miraculous deliverance, and in their suffering, they show the hope of the gospel. In the darkest hours throughout the book of Acts, The light of the gospel shines brightly because people who are being persecuted and beaten demonstrate the hope that they have in Christ, that even if they die, they will live. And so if you look at the book of Acts, you cannot think even for a moment that Jesus is saying, you're going to need this sword for your own survival because you're not going to make it unless you're willing to kill, kill a few people. It's not what he means. 
So the question is then, what does he mean? What does he mean for them? And what does he mean for us? And to answer that question, I want to begin in verse 24 and talk a little bit about the danger of pride as we seek to follow Christ. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 24, says a dispute arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. They they get their name on a special plate. You know, it's on a plaque. They know who paid for this. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So let's pause for just a moment there. Talk about the danger of spiritual pride. The the idea that we are great in and of ourselves. Maybe God saved me because this is my special gift to the church and he really needed me in order to build this place. Well, that's simply not true. God looks good when he saves unqualified people because he is truly great. And he can save anyone. And so the reality is, Jesus, the greatest of all, God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, humbles himself and becomes a man and serves. And how does he serve? This is really critical because as we talk about how do we serve one another, you look at what Christ does, And primarily, he is devoted to faithfully teaching and preaching the word of God so that people understand who God is and how they can know him personally. He loves to meet the needs of people. He has compassion on the poor. He has compassion on the sick. He shows his power over Satan. But more than anything, he again and again points people to the word of God so that they can know God, so that they are led to a type of repentance, so that they experience forgiveness, so that they have new life. Christ serves his followers by teaching him what is true based on the word of God. And he urges them to be the kind of humble servant that follows his example. They do put the needs of other people first, but they serve them best as they are continually devoted to the word of God so that they can know God and teach others to do the same. Notice verse 28 through 30. He says that, You are those who have stayed with me at my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He is teaching that there is future joy. The hour they're about to enter is dark as they are faithful and hold fast to what he has taught them. There will be a time of joy and reward But that joy and that reward 
is not in the present life. And if they're going to remain faithful, they need to have the same sort of humble attitude that Christ has modeled for them. And so he's saying, this time of blessing is in the future. You need to get ready to get your hands dirty and you need to be a faithful servant just like I've shown you. And he turns from addressing the group and addresses Peter, the guy that that most often gets himself into trouble by opening his big mouth and saying something dumb. And he does not disappoint in this passage either. Look at verse 31. Jesus turns and says, Simon, Simon, Simon is another name for Peter. Same guy, you'll see in verse 33. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. There are so many things that we could see in this text. So many awesome, one of them, just one of them. The reality that when Jesus prays, he never entertains the possibility that his prayer will be ineffective and that Peter will fail forever. Notice how he phrases this. Satan has desired to have you. It was Satan's desire that Peter would deny the Lord and Peter would be crushed by his failure and never preach again. Maybe even become like Judas and become suicidal. If you read what happens to Judas in in the book of Acts, Judas is so ashamed at what he's done in selling the Lord for money that he goes out and hangs himself. That was Satan's desire for Peter. But Jesus prays for Peter that his faith will not fail. He doesn't pray that Peter wouldn't deny him. He allows that. But he prays that after Peter's worst moral failure in the New Testament, that his faith would not fail. That he would understand that God loved him still. That he would understand that the forgiveness that Jesus offered extended even to this denial that he knew Christ. And so that he would know that God loved him and forgave him. Even after this. And notice how Jesus talks. He says... When you have turned again. You know, the biblical word for repentance just means turning. It means turning around. And so what Jesus is saying is, when you have repented from that denial, when you have acknowledged that it was wrong, when you have said sorry and you receive the forgiveness of God, when you have turned, not if, Jesus is confident that his prayer for Peter will be effective and that Peter's faith will not fail, that he will walk in the forgiveness that God offers all of us. And he says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. You know what Peter does if you look through the book of Acts that records the early history of the church? He strengthens his brothers. He leads. He can preach the gospel of God's grace that God will forgive the worst sinner 
because he has experienced God's grace so deeply. He betrayed the Lord by denying him. And he experienced the forgiveness of the Lord and the love of God. And so he can strengthen those who had their own failings and their own fears. And maybe you feel like you've failed in a big way. And so there's no chance that God will love you. And maybe if God loves you, there's no chance that people will love you because of this terrible failure. Peter would say, no. I denied the Lord Jesus. I denied that I even knew him when he was abandoned by everyone else. And the Lord loved me and forgave me. In spite of that, he can forgive you. That's the hope that you have. This, this prayer of Christ is so helpful as we battle our own pride. Because Peter would have had one of the loudest voices saying, you know, I, I've walked on water. I've seen the glory of Jesus. He had done incredible things and seen incredible things. And you can imagine that as they're arguing about who's the greatest, his voice is loud and Jesus humbles him and says, Peter, you're going to deny me. Your position in my kingdom is not because you're perfect. Not because you're naturally gifted. His position in the kingdom of Christ was because of the grace of Jesus who loved him and called him and gave him this position. And Jesus' prayer for Peter should have been so humbling because if it were up to Peter, he would have failed. But it wasn't up to Peter. Christ prayed for him. And so his faith didn't fail. If your faith and my faith depends on the prayer of Christ, we can't take any credit for faithfulness. I can't take credit for being a pastor and say, you know, I've avoided a lot of the same mistakes that other people made, so here I am. That's not how it works. And if you're a Christian and you feel like you're better than other people because you haven't made some of the same mistakes or experienced the same problems, you're just in a foolish place of pride. Paul says in Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive that God gave you as a gift? All of us receive good things from the Father. The greatest thing that we receive is our forgiveness before the Father and we can't take any credit for that at all. And so the way, the way Christ prays for Peter, it does terrible damage to our pride. And it does wonderful help for our faith. But that leads him into this hour of darkness. Remember I said at the beginning, as we talked a little bit about Psalm 23, that the good shepherd doesn't prevent us from going through the valley. He goes through the valley with us. Well, look at how Jesus describes what's about to happen. Verse 35, he says again to the disciples who are arguing about who's the greatest. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, I think the attitude is, this conversation is over. You don't get it. 
If we were to take this passage super literally, he'd say, all right, guys, you need 10 more. That's not what he says. I believe he's saying you've missed the whole point. And the key to understanding this is in verse 37. He says, the reason you need to do these things to take provisions for yourself. Verse 37, he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now, if you look, that, that scripture that he quotes is from Isaiah 53, and it describes the utter abandonment of the Messiah. That he will be alone when he suffers for our sins. And Jesus is saying, I am about to be alone. All of you are going to forsake me, even you, Peter. And because he is utterly alone and forsaken... They need to prepare for that hour. Not with literal swords. They need to recognize that the kingdom of God is going to advance first through the sacrifice of the Son, through the death of Jesus the Messiah, and then through the suffering of His people. Sometimes God in His providence allows the death of His saints Again, I keep referencing the book of Acts. It's such precious and valuable history for us as a church. You can think about Stephen, who is known as the first martyr. He is a faithful Christian. He loves the poor. He helps feed widows who have no other means of providing for themselves. He has compassion in very practical ways. And he's known as someone who likes to talk about Jesus. And again, the same pattern happens. People become jealous of his ability to talk about God and to know God. And so they wrongfully accuse him. They make up lies about him and they drag him outside the city and they stone him. He didn't grab a sword. What Jesus is saying, don't expect your ministry to be like the time of exciting growth where you had everything you need. There are times when God in his wisdom allows his servants to go hungry. There are times when God in his wisdom allows his servants to go broke. He's saying before in your ministry, as we were building this, I provided for you in ways that you had to give God credit for. Don't expect that God will meet every desire of your heart if your desires are sinful, if your desires are fleshly. Recognize sometimes by denying yourself, the kingdom of God will grow and advance. So be ready for this hour of need. Be ready for this hour of lack. Later in the New Testament, you find Paul saying things like, I know how to be in need and I know how to live with abundance. God worked through both in his life. And Jesus is preparing his followers for the first time that they would ever experience an hour of need and God didn't miraculously provide. Think about what they'd seen him do. Think think about multiple times they'd seen him take tiny amounts of food, enough for one person, and feed thousands. That's their expectation of what ministry with Jesus is like. And what Jesus is telling them is that is not what ministry is going to be like now. 
And if that's the case, I believe my expectation and your expectation needs to be adjusted in some key ways. Think about, for a moment, what that means for the life of the church. Not talking about our church specifically, I'm talking about the church universal. If you take the Bible seriously, you know that things will get bad before Christ returns. It talks about mass deception, where people believe what they want to believe rather than what's true, and they run away from the truth of God's word, and churches don't thrive. There, there are going to be some churches that do because they preach a false gospel, but, but churches that are faithful to the word of God, Jesus says, hang on, I'm coming. But he's not promising abundance. So what does that mean for me as a pastor and for, for us as a church? It means that even if we don't see the kinds of things that we hope for, that would make our lives more comfortable, that would, that would make ministry easier, even if we don't see those things, we ought not be discouraged God is not failing in any sense. If anything, exactly what he's described in scripture is coming true. Now, I do not for a second want to become complacent. Because as you look at the book of Acts and you look at the suffering, you see that in their suffering the church grows. And you see that he commands us to be faithful in spreading the gospel, to be faithful in praying with power, expecting God to do the miraculous. And I believe that as a church, we ought to pray for revival, that God would revive my heart and yours, that we would be excited about what Jesus has done for us, and we would be eager to see other people come to know him, that we would expect that God can make the church grow in astonishing ways. But even if he doesn't, that doesn't mean that he's not faithful. We may be called to serve in a dark time, in a dark hour. I mentioned a little bit earlier about how every generation in the history of humanity has worried that the following generation is just going to drop the ball and fail. If you watch the news, this is 2020. This is an election year. I've always considered it a terrible tragedy that every election year happens to be a leap year so that we have one more day to put up with all this nonsense I don't care what party you're in. One party will lose this election. And so some of you are going to be disappointed. Doesn't matter. I, I guarantee you there's, there's a mixture of, of political support in this room. Your hope must not rest in the outcome of an election. You may feel like we were a Christian nation and those people are taking it away from you. You know what Jesus says about this world? Not just America, but the world. Jesus says that this world is in the power of Satan. There's not like a little outpost that this country happens to be God's. I'm sorry. You can try and set it up. It usually fails within two generations. One of the most stunning things I learned as a student of theology, I was reading Kierkegaard when I was, and this is probably the first time I've ever mentioned Kierkegaard from the pulpit. I was reading Kierkegaard when I was in undergrad, and Kierkegaard was writing to the people of Denmark as a Christian nation. And I thought, Denmark? They can't possibly be a Christian nation. But you know, they, they considered themselves a Christian nation because they had a king who traced his kingship to the Holy Roman Empire. And so, of course, all of Denmark was a Christian nation. And Kierkegaard said, you know what? You people are not living like Christians. You've inherited this, this so-called cultural Christianity, but you're not salt and light. You don't know Jesus. 
Jesus says that the Christian life is a life of following him by taking up your cross, and none of you were doing that. And I thought, shoot. If that was true of Denmark 200 years ago, that's true of America today. You might think that you have a cultural Christian heritage, but Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if he's not here on a throne, that means your country is not his country. And I'm not talking about Republican or Democrat. I don't care who you support. The reality is, Things will get worse before they get better. Don't become bitter at the people that you think are taking your country from you. The reality is, those are the people you're supposed to win for Christ. We're supposed to be building Jesus' kingdom, not America. The reality of this passage says, Jesus may call us to live in a dark time when everyone turns away. You be faithful and be ready. God will bless you and reward you. Don't be afraid when your party loses. If anything, be more hopeful in Christ and let your light shine brightly. People are real cranky on Facebook over political stuff. If you are gracious, you can be salt and light. Show them that your hope is in Christ, not in some political party or some politician. Not only that, some of you just hate the whole thing and try to be apolitical, and and that's fine, but recognize that when times are dark, people need light. So let your light shine. Put your hope in Jesus and let it be obvious. Not only that, even apart from politics, know that you personally will be tested. If you've come to Christ and you know who Jesus is and you believe that he's your Savior... At some point, you will go through the valley of the shadow of death. I don't know when and I don't know how. My prayer for you as a pastor is that your faith would not fail. And not only that, more importantly than my prayer and the prayers of our church, the reality is Jesus prays for you just like he prayed for Peter. Hebrews 7.25 says that he ever lives to intercede for his children. If you are a child of God, Jesus is praying for you now, so be encouraged. I don't know what you're going through, but know that your Savior will take you through it. And so be encouraged. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, I pray that you would deepen our faith. That when you provide with great abundance, we would be thankful. Give you glory. And Lord, when you take us through dark hours, that our faith would not fail. But that you would bless us with steadfastness and hope that would make the light of Jesus so bright that people would be drawn to him. Lord, I do ask that you would build this church, Lord. I pray that we would be faithful in showing the hope that we have in Christ. That the whole church would be excited about Jesus. Father, may we rest in your perfect plan until he comes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Before I dismiss you, I want to say that if you have a spiritual need, maybe you're in a time of darkness and you haven't talked to anybody, 
I want to be available to you. You don't have to talk to me today. You can call the church. You can send me an email. Take me aside privately and say, Pastor, I just need prayer for this. If you're discouraged, I want to be faithful as a church to support you in whatever way that we can and just make sure that you know that that's available. One of the ways Jesus provides for you is when the body surrounds you and encourages you and supports you. So make, make sure that you take advantage of that and don't be alone. I want to leave you with the end of Psalm 23 and encourage you to just take these verses as a promise from the Good Shepherd. If you know the Lord Jesus, this is for you. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Go in peace.